Thank you one and all once again for tuning in to another episode of Talk So Real with Matt Sanzala. We are back in Dallas for this one with a man who's very important to me in my life for many years, my brother Jeff Lyles. What's up, man? Hey, Matt. How you doing? Man, I'm good. I'm so always so glad to see you. You're very literally in the history of my coming to Dallas for many years. You're probably always the first stop. <laughs> That's One nice. of the first stops. Because I remember, I mean, like, you were a big part of my uh, young life coming to Houston. I always think to myself, like, <clears throat> people talk shit about Dallas. And maybe recently Houston's gotten a little more love in certain ways or whatever. But it was never really, like, a place that people were really looking to go to. And it was because they didn't know us. Like, if you knew Jeff Lyles and you came to <laughs> Dallas, you saw Dallas. You had fun, man. And you have so much history here. And I really want to talk to you about some of that. Because, I mean, when I was young, I first saw Deccan and Dub Team. And uh, the only thing I knew was y'all were playing at the Axiom, I think opening for Billy Goat when I met you. And I just knew you were on the color soundtrack. Yeah, I knew the yeah. song Six Gun and I knew nothing about y'all at all. I just saw your name like in the public news ad for the Axiom when you guys were doing that show. Yeah, we actually played there a couple different times. A few times. My yeah. You were on my first show there. Yeah, yeah. With Three Wise Men and H-Town Hispanics. That was crazy. We almost got mug loading in. Oh. It was right in the middle of a bad neighborhood. <laughs> oh, they're opening a wine bar in that intersection. <laughs> yeah, For it's real. 2022. 2022. The Axiom, <laughs> I mean, that's where the um, the Houston Dynamo Stadium is now. The whole East End has become this, like, anything cool is happening in the East End pretty much right now. Further east than that, even. Well, there used to be a trap spot literally right next door to the, the back door, the load-in door. And there was a lot of foot traffic there, a lot of people coming and going. And uh, they saw me with my video camera and all my gear and everything yeah. and started chasing me down the street. Probably some dogs <laughs> involved, too, in that chase, I would assume. There's always crazy stray dogs. and I still got a lot of that on video. Really? Yeah, oh, yeah. No, I would love to see that. That was fun, man. But that first time I saw you, um, you had a big watch on stage i remember <laughs> a watch that i won at the state fair of texas and i think it was you and <laughs> and ty macklin yeah ty was uh he was still in high school then yeah and jason jason wolford yeah was the dj and there was one other guy yeah a guy named the J. the J. okay Jay wolford all right i'm sorry not uh i can't remember jay's last name he passed away recently not uh, i forgot oh man yeah he was an incredible mc though yeah those are the days man it was so fun like Cause like I said, they weren't, you know, on the, the Dr. Dre remix, which we'll get into all that in a minute, but, uh, that was on the color soundtrack. There was the, like sampled vocals, but of you. No, it actually wasn't me. That was David. That was David? Yeah. David Williams? Yeah. When okay. we originally recorded that song, it was, it was all instrumental except okay. for like the sound bites that I'd put in there from news clips and stuff like that. And, uh, we delivered the version of it to, to Kim Bowie, who was our A&R person mm -hmm. at Island. And after hearing it, she was like, you know, you really, y'all ought to put some vocals on this. And we kind of thought about it. You know, we weren't really, at that point in the, uh, in, the, in the progression of the band, we didn't really do vocals. We were all like instrumental hip hop, you know. Mm -hmm. It was just kind of uh, mainly just found sound bites, that kind of stuff. So we went back and forth, uh, who was going to do the vocal, you know. And to be clear, this was the late 80s. Yeah, this was 1986. 86, yes. Yeah, and... Uh, neither one of us really wanted to do the vocal. So uh, finally, David said, look, I'll do it. And I wrote one line down, and he did it, and that was that. 
and wow. uh, yeah, yeah, it was and it was a first take. It wasn't really like something we went over and over trying to get it right or anything like that. We mm -hmm. just you know, we said all right, we try and put a vocal on it, so we did, and it was one one line, and <laughs> that was yeah. about it. Man, so I didn't. I think that show was ninety ninety one ish when I saw you at the Axiom. Maybe ninety two. Yeah, yeah. Somewhere that was after when David and Paul both left the band, and I decided to find some MCs around town and just have like a kind of revolving door deal with different MCs uh, who were in the band for like a couple of months here, there, a couple of months, you know. Yeah, and I didn't expect like a rap show from what I heard. That one song that I had heard. When when we first started out, we were really into Tackhead. Mm -hmm. We were real into Adrian Sherwood stuff mm -hmm. uh, that was kind of really subversive. Uh, mixed media, kind of multimedia, chopped up sound bites and stuff like that. I mean, you kind of got to realize uh, where the arc of trajectory was for technology at the time. Mm -hmm. We were the first band in Dallas that had samplers. Hmm. We were the first band in Dallas that had drum machines. Okay. And that, that was really primitive gear, you know, and uh, we were kind of learning how to use that gear while writing stuff at the same time. So a lot of it, you know, when I listen to it now, people have come such a long way with their production chops, you know. And back then, you just kind of, you know, you had this brand new piece of gear that, you know, you may or may not be able to figure out. Mm -hmm. You know, there's a lot of experimentation involved. But the guys in Tackhead and, and uh, in England were really just so far ahead of the curve, you know. And it, theirs was more a mixture of live in instrumentation, too. You know, the Fats Comet stuff had... Doug Wimbish and people like that playing on it. Mm -hmm. um, but yeah, that's what we wanted to do. We kind of wanted to replicate what they were doing, but have more of an American mass media sensibility, if that makes sense. Yeah, for sure. I uh, think about those days, and, and it's crazy what you just said, because I, just a clip on the internet, I was watching DJ Premier interview uh, Large Professor. Yeah. And they were talking about how before even like Q-Tip and Large Professor had equipment, they would bring records into the studio because it wasn't that easy to come by and the shit was expensive back then. It wasn't like you just went and got it. Like, and, I mean, you could go get it, but not everybody. And they'd go in and Paul C would get in there on the other machines and loop up things for them, like in, right in the beginning. Yeah, yeah. Until they got their own equipment and started learning it. And you wouldn't even think about that sort of thing today. Well, now, I mean, now when people sample stuff, they look for really obscure stuff and they really uh, mutate it, twist mm -hmm. it around or whatever. Back when we first got this gear and we were, we were trying to figure it out and what we were going to do with it, we were sampling anything. We would sample Slayer, mm -hmm. you know, or, or uh, Black Sabbath or something like that, you know, and it was a real literal, obvious sample to us, mm -hmm. you know, to some people that never listened to, you know, 70s rock or whatever, so they didn't really know that. We sampled Bad Company, Feel Like Making Love, mm -hmm. you know, that dun 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 dun, dun, dun. Yeah. we'd put it in a loop and then just call it Feel Like Making Dub and put a bunch of stuff on top of that. I mean, no one would ever sample anything that liberally right now, that obvious, you know. But back then, it was just you were still in that kind of uh, discovery phase, you know, yeah. of, of how you could make certain stuff that you may or may not have liked. You can make it sound really ridiculous just in repetition, you know. And the De La Soul lawsuits hadn't come up yet, and they, nobody knew what this new uh, that was. That was, was, was really when, it, when, that, when that record came out and there were so many samples on it, that's when people started kind of analyzing the legal aspect of, you know, sampling other people's music. You couldn't just do it. You couldn't mm -hmm. just flat out do it like that, you know. So were these samples and the, these songs you were making, were they coming out on cassette? Yeah, a lot of times we would just, we would do uh, 
handmade cassettes and just hand them to people, give them to people. How much vinyl back then? Uh, we, Cause I think it was 1990, we got a deal with Triple X, and they started putting out our singles on vinyl. Triple mm-hmm. X is the label that did the first Jane's Addiction record That's in right. Los Angeles. That's right. What? All right, so when I met you, I have to, uh, of course, admit being like 19 at the time, 18, 19, or 20, whatever it was, fanboyed out pretty hard because... <laughs> No, your name—you're <laughs> thanked on the back of NWA records, man. Your name is on the yeah, back of NWA knew, and the posse. No, nobody knew who NWA was. Then. I knew who NWA yeah. was. I was freaking. I was like, "What? <laughs> <laughs> what did you do?" <laughs> yeah, you know, like a lot of stuff in this business, so much of it is luck. Just yeah. kind of being in the right place at the right time. And when we were uh, talking to Island about doing a record with Island. Kim Bowie, who was the woman who was the A&R person who was trying to sign us, she, at the same time, had discovered NWA playing in a roller rink in Compton, mm-hmm. California. So she was trying to sign them, too. And uh, we would go out there to L.A. to meet with her or whatever, and Eric and Dre would be hanging out in the office, you know. And in a way, Kim was kind of teaching us all about the music business, how it works, and, and um, what what we could expect, you know, at mm-hmm. being part of a record deal, you know, whatever. So, uh, in a way kind of, uh, their group and, and our group were kind of in a classroom in mm-hmm. a way. Kim was, was teaching us how it all worked, you know? And, um, we became friends with them. We would, we would hang out with them. We would go to LA, you know, they were still, you know, young emerging, uh, act. They were doing their thing. And, uh, yeah, that's how I met Dre. And uh, <laughs> Eric was the first person I ever knew who had a cell phone. Mm-hmm. So he would call me up, you know, and he's like, hey, Jeff, guess where I am, man? I'm like, where are you? And he goes, I'm standing on a street corner talking on a phone that ain't got no wire. Oh, man. <laughs> I know, he's just calling me because he could, you know. Yep. He just wanted to call somebody in Texas, you know. <laughs> yeah, man, that's crazy. Because you were on the radio at the time. You were on KNON, right? Yeah, yeah. That was actually, uh, Eric would send me these cassettes that they had done at home, like Boys in the Hood. And uh, Dope Man and Eight Ball and all those songs when they first first recorded them, and so I would play them on the radio. I played the cassette, Man. and uh, yeah, I got I got laid off for a while for playing songs <laughs> that had a lot of profanity in it. Yeah, but before those records were even out, they were getting airplay in Dallas. Yeah. Oh yeah. Was KNON was one of the first three radio stations in the country to play hip hop on the radio. I, yeah. Well, yeah. I mean, Easy Eddie D's been on the air longer than almost anyone. That's ever, what I mean. There or was, anyone. There was uh, uh, All Hardy Def Party. All Hardy Def Party was on KNON, but I mean, the three stations were K Day in Los Angeles, which was an AM station mm-hmm. that played like Egyptian Lover and that kind of dance floor stuff. And then there was um, DJ Red Alert in New York. Yep. He was he was the first on there, so in a way it was the East Coast, the West Coast, and then this little community station in Texas. Mm-hmm. You know, because back then commercial radio wasn't about to touch hip hop. It was like the cultural equivalent of punk rock. They just wouldn't have played it. I mean, black radio wasn't playing it. Oh, of course not. Of course no. not. They played more dance stuff. You know, MC Hammer when it came out, that kind of stuff. But they really certainly wouldn't touch gangster rap. No. It wasn't even even that much of a thing at that point. Like people didn't even weren't ready for that when NWA actually did come out. Oh, you know what? They when when we played it, uh, people went berserk. Yeah. To tell you the truth, I mean, every time we would play an NWA song or Eric songs, uh, all eight lines on the phone would light up. 
Well, I mean, people, yes, but the industry. Oh, the industry. No. Well, you know, Kim recognized that yeah. it, they were on to something. She, she really did. She knew before anybody else that, you know, it was, it was profane and it was con- confrontational. Uh, it was uh, social commentary, you know, real blunt first-person social commentary. She had the foresight to know that it was going to end up being a really big deal. Man. Her boss at, at Island, Chris Blackwell, just he, he just didn't get it on that level, you know. I mean, I'm sure he recognized it would ma- might make money, but, you know, Chris Blackwell was about good vibes. He was about Bob Marley and you too and stuff like that. So, he, you know, I think he probably saw them as a – potentially negative impact on the liability i mean yeah shit. exactly well i know i appreciate you introducing me to kim as well it's at a certain point after we met because she both of you were big mentors to me as i tried to make my way through this crazy music industry and you guys were always like really grounding factors in a lot of things you know like what if i needed some advice or even just talk out some things it was always you and kim she taught us how it works yeah you know i mean so much between her and michael lago who was the a and r guy at electra he Mm -hmm. michael was actually the first a and r guy who came to dallas to hear bands he was the guy that signed metallica okay and he also when i was managing rigor mortis at the time he shared a lot of insight too about how the metal end of the, the the industry works so between the two of them, I mean, they taught me how this business works, you know, and, and what they were each specialized in. Michael was more into Metallica, and he eventually worked with people like Nina Simone and stuff like that. Kim uh, came from a different place. She came from middle America, college radio background. That whole thing, I think she came from a little town in Kansas. Mm-hmm. So she kind of had a middle, middle America sensibility about it. She signed uh, Driving and Crying when they first came out out of Atlanta. Um, and she recognized that there was a music scene happening in Deep Alum in Dallas, and she did the Sound of Deep Alum record, which was the first record that New Bohemians and Reverend Horton Heat, mm-hmm. our band, and the Buck Pets. Yep. You know, she ended up signing the Buck Pets to Island, too. That's right. And their record was really ahead of the curve. I mean, it was a brilliant, brilliant grunge record that came out two or three years before grunge was even a thing. I think I've told you my, gr- my Buck Pets story before. No, tell me. <laughs> Uh, South by Southwest before, it was the second time I had ever gone to South by. The first time I didn't even know what it was, which would have probably been 90, 91, probably 91. And say like 92, I went with some friends and right after Mardi Gras, and we went to Mardi Gras and we were staying at a punk rock house. And the girl had booked, man, what was the Dallas punk band? Oh, I can't remember. It was like a band called, it was like called Aggravated or Aggravators or something like that. It weren't like huge. But it was something Agitators. Like, Agitators. Yeah, yeah. Definitely Dallas. And they canceled opening for L7. Yeah. And we were drunk, drunk the whole time in New Orleans. Like it was, we, we were, we did like two weeks of Mardi Gras. It was silly. And we told the promoter that we'll play, we'll, we'll, we'll just take their place. It's fine. Yeah, we got a band and they let us for some silly reason. We just went and did like stupid ass noise and it was really stupid. And funny. But then a couple weeks later was uh, South by Southwest, and we came up. And the first night, we had no plans. We, we slept in the car. And the second night, I was still like, I'm not leaving. I want to see what's going on here. But the dude I was with was like, man, we got to fuck this place, man. Forget this. I'm not sleeping in the car again. This sucks. We need to go back <laughs> to Houston. This is stupid. And I swear to God, I'm standing on the corner, and these two girls come up to us, and they're like, hey, aren't y'all the guys that played in New Orleans with L7? 
And we were like, yes. <laughs> what do you, and they're like, where are y'all staying? I'm like, yeah, we live here. I was like, can we stay at your house? They're like, yeah, sure. <laughs> and it was crazy. And we're like, okay. So we go up by campus and it's us and the buck pets. They were staying at the house too. Oh, that's great. And so there's like a couple girls who live there and the buck pets and us, we didn't know anybody. We had sleeping bags like on the floor of the living room and they stayed up all night, like playing cards and games and stuff. And we're loud playing music. And we just, you know, passed out on the floor and the next morning, I guess they had pissed off the people downstairs real bad. So they got up like eight in the morning. It was early, like Sunday morning and just started blasting their music. And they were literally like slamming the ceiling with their broomsticks or whatever. And this girl comes flying out of the bedroom, runs down the stairs, rips a fence post out of the ground, like physically just rips this fence post out of the ground and just starts smashing all their windows. Oh, man. And they come out freaking out. Somebody calls the cops. We just grabbed our <laughs> sleeping bags and everything, and we oh, just got out of there pretty quick. I don't know what happened to the Buck Pets. Well, they were, the the one, they were one of the first bands in the Deep Elm scene that bought a van, mm -hmm. threw all their shit in a van, and, and hit the road. Yep. And when the Flaming Lips had come and played at Theater Gallery, they made friends with the Flaming Lips. And Wayne's uh, girlfriend at the time, this lady named Michelle Flasimsky, uh, loved the Buck Pets and became their manager and just got them out on the road. Mm. So, that, I mean, they were kids. They were like literally right out of high school. And they were living the rock star life literally uh, from the minute they picked up a guitar. They were staying up all night and trashing hotel rooms and doing all that, man. And, uh, you know, Michelle got them out there playing and they would go play anywhere. Mm -hmm. You know, they would get in the van and drive to Minnesota and play in Minnesota, you know. And uh, Kim recognized that. She recognized they had this kind of uh, uh, charismatic appeal that, you know, years on down the line other bands have, have embraced and done the same thing and and uh, i mean they they uh well put it this way i mean when they went and played in chicago the smashing pumpkins opened for them mm -hmm. and smashing pumpkins hometown yeah you know i mean that that's and and they went on to play i mean i remember when they opened for neil young and crazy horse at the la forum you know where the lakers played yeah and I, they played two nights with them and i remember that second night andy uh the singer and I were standing underneath the bleachers as Neil Young was about to go on. And I, I just about to light up a joint. And I looked at Andy and said, man, you just opened for Neil Young. I mean, where are you going to go from here? And he's like, oh, man, I don't know. Mm -hmm. <laughs> you know, I mean, because I mean, Neil Young was their big hero, you know, and uh, and opening up for Crazy Horse is like, where do you go from there? You know? <laughs> yeah, for sure. Well, I love that you ha you represented like a crossover of cultures up here because Dallas and most a lot, most places don't get the recognition they deserve of, of the history and the things that came out. But in that period of time in the late 80s, you know, I, I recently Texas Monthly did a really stupid um, list of Texas hip hop of, of the years or whatever. And they're like, well, you know, we really don't want to just make it all Houston, but they made them almost all Houston. Like Munchies for Your Bass was not on there. You know, Nemesis <laughs> was not on there. And back yeah. when, before the, you know, when the Ghetto Boys were starting to happen and things, but Munchies for Your Bass was big. Like, Nemesis was big. The DOC made the greatest rap album of all time. Yeah, Ron C. Ron C. Yeah. I mean, the, the list goes on and on of what was going on up here. And, and uh, Dallas has also been home to a lot of woman singers. Oh, who man. Are amazing. They own it. Oh. I mean, if, if you look at any other major metropolitan area in the country and add it up, I mean, literally, there, if you added up all the record sales of all the female vocalists in Dallas, 
uh, from Dallas, Fort Worth or North Texas or whatever, it literally is more records than all the rest of the records by anybody in any town, except maybe Motown in Detroit. I mean, you've got Dixie Chicks and Nora Jones and, you know, Jessica Simpson and all the, you know, right, Erica Badu, Badu. Right, right down the line. I mean, just these, you know, dozens of multi-platinum female vocalists that all came from Dallas-Fort Worth across all genres, you know. Mm-hmm. What was that Deep Ellum scene like? Because when that record came out, there was some, there was diversity on there, but that was pre-Club Exodus, I would assume. Yeah, Club Exodus Not started about 1989. 89? Yeah. Oh, I, I believe it's 88 or 89. And uh, that record came out in late 87, I believe. Because I know you were booking Exodus at one point, but I have to say, for the record, it's to this day one of the coolest hip-hop spots I ever was at. Yeah, I, I definitely, ever. I wasn't the agent there. It was it was Jeff Skin Wade who was bringing That's artists right. in there. I thought you booked, like, Pete Rock and Seal Smooth. Or you booked, I remember, no, no, I, maybe I you were just there. telling me about it. I was there, and I saw a gang star there. Come up here, so, yeah. yeah, I mean, it was right around the corner from Trees, which was a right. club that I booked at the time. Right, right. I mean, it was literally, literally 50 feet away from it, you know, so... The, the thing about Deep Ellum is this. Um, if you look back at the history of Dallas music, the center of gravity for Dallas music has moved around town over the course of the years. You know, when I was a teenager, it was on Northwest Highway, and it was all 70s rock bands that were cover bands. You know, there was no original music scene at all. And then uh, a couple of years after that, it was Lower Greenville Avenue with uh, the Arcadia Theater and Tango and all that. And that was right when punk and new wave kind of started to happen. So that was happening there. And then Deep Ellum kind of uh, kicked up around 85 or 86. And the thing about Deep Ellum that was different was it was there was a commitment to original music. Mm -hmm. You know, it wasn't about playing other people's music or being in a copy band or doing anything like that. So as a result, you had these, uh, these kid bands that were from the suburbs that all ended up finding this neighborhood outside of downtown Dallas, this empty warehouse district where they could write and play their own songs. Because as a musician at that point in time, you had a choice to make. You could either play other people's music and be in a copy band, or you could write your own music and try and make it. Mm -hmm. you know? And Deep Ellen was a safe haven for artists that played original music. As a result, you had people that played different kinds of music that all showed up there. These bands that came from the suburbs, like the Buck Pets were a grunge band from Plano. Shallow Rain was kind of a psychedelic rock band from North Dallas. Uh, Three on a Hill was kind of a, a proto-punk, uh, really energetic band from Carrollton. You know, End Over End was kind of an art rock band from Highland Park. And New Bohemians were kind of a, a Grateful Dead hippie jam band type thing from East Dallas. So you had you had all these different bands. Rigor Mortis, they were from the, you know, speed metal band from Arlington, you know. Yeah. They all found this home in Deep Ellum, you know. And as a result, it wasn't, you know, whereas a lot of those type of musics are typically really clicky and people just kind of stick to their style of music. You had like uh, the guys in rigor mortis going to see New Bohemians play mm -hmm. and vice versa. You know, they were totally different kinds of music, but they had respect for the musicianship. You know, they had a, a respect for the chops and the dedication, the commitment to wanting to write and play your own music. That's what they had in common. And that's always been really what Deep Ellum has been about. It was kind of a vacuum. It was a safe haven for people who didn't want to just be a jukebox, a human jukebox playing other people's music all night, every night. Was it not a place with bars and clubs with music in the 70s? No, no. it was an empty warehouse district. Really? Okay. Yeah, I mean, it was the last time prior to that that it had been in like an entertainment district was in the Depression era. 
Wow. You know, it was literally the other side of the tracks. That's where it's literally. Lead yeah. Belly and, you know, Robert Johnson and people like that played. I mean, mm-hmm. It was, uh, it was uh, they had what was called chalk houses. And it's during the Prohibition era, you couldn't buy and sell beer. So they made this liquor called chalk, C-O-J-C-K. And, you know, I remember I talked to some of these older blues guys and they tell me, you know, like Alex Moore was telling me about it. We were playing in the front, you know, and the police jumped in the front door and we ran out the back door with the chalk, you know, yeah. <laughs> and they then set up shop somewhere else, you know. Yeah. And uh, that, that's how they did it. And then in a way, theater gallery was kind of like the same type of vibe. It was totally illegal. You know, we just gave away free beer every night. We didn't have a telephone. We didn't really have a, a liquor permit or anything like that. We were just kind of, it was our private, you know, kind of tree house. And that's where mm. people would come hang out and play. Where exactly was that? It was on Commerce Street, 2808 Commerce. Okay. And then Deep Elm crashed a bit for a while. And I and I knew that because when I would come up here for Murder Dog and take photos of the rappers, I didn't have to actually go all the way into the hood. We could, I could stay downtown and we could just go to empty abandoned buildings in uh, Deep Elm in the early 2000s, I would say. Yeah. But it came and, back. Well, no, the mid, I'd say it was from like 2002 to 2009. It was dead as a doornail. Yeah. You know, and especially like when the recession happened, then... You know that was that there was a you know an economic downturn and, and uh, you know trees closed clearview closed bomb factory closed they all closed down and um you know uh, that's why i moved to los angeles to tell you the truth because yeah. there just wasn't anything going on here at all i remember and prior to that though you just mentioned the bomb factory and i'll never forget seeing like souls of mischief de la soul and tribe at that show and what i always tell people when i was younger in houston i mean when rap shows would come to Houston, they were at the clubs, like black clubs, 100%. Couple, you know, there were people there, myself, Damo, you know, people that predated me, Wiz and stuff like that, a few, Steve Fournier, of course. But it was mostly like a straight up north side neighborhood venue or south side neighborhood venue, that was it. But when I came up here and we'd see shows at Exodus or different and little trees. places. And trees, that's true. Trees had, you know, Cypress Everybody. Hill, they had Ghetto Boys, they had Chill Rob G. All the shows, Tribe Called Quest, De La Soul, all of those artists played there. And I mean, yep. that's still the same room that had Radiohead, Nirvana, right. and Pearl Jam, and all those bands. And when I would come up here, though, I'd see a much more, di- early on in hip-hop, I'd see a much more diverse scene and killer DJs. Yeah, Baby G. Baby G, of course, but the list goes on and on. I mean, it was DJ so Zero. fun. Yeah. And it was just a whole different like kind of contrast. In fact, it was kind of... I feel like I saw Positive K here and in Houston, and not one person went to Houston at all. Mm. But he had a nice show here. Yeah, like it was just kind of so weird back then. It was it was really happening. Yeah, and lots of fun. A lot of that has to do with K and O N, Easy yeah. Eddie D. I mean, he introduced so many people to to underground hip hop. I mean, I can't tell you how many times I was listening to his show. I was like, where did he find that record? Mm-hmm. You know, who the hell is that? Oh my God! You know. Man, it's incredible. Yeah, and still doing it. He's been doing it 30-something years. Incredible. It's a, it's a testament, man. Like, this city, I remember always also being jealous that you guys had, you had all the regional offices here for the for the record labels. You had a lot of more of, like, sort of a business mind and more things. You know, we were, Houston was just so one thing at you, one point. You know what bugs me about that? I mean, What's Dallas that? was kind of the, the tent pole for that regional area mm-hmm. for when record companies had these big food chains, you know, the, these whole staff full of people that did all this stuff. 
and the, the bottom caved out of the industry, you know, when retail started going away and, and the, the, the industry didn't really have a model ready to sell music online yet. They didn't know how they were mm -hmm. going to do it. And Napster kind of happened and basically destroyed the retail mom and pop brick and mortar uh, stores. I felt so bad for a lot of those people because they had spent their entire lives working in those positions for 15, 20 years. You know, it's all they knew how to do in their lives, mm -hmm. you know, and to have their entire industry just cave beneath them you know uh, I, mean, I mean every single major label scaled down to almost nothing you know and and radio wasn't as important as it used to be so you didn't really have these radio promoters anymore and i, I felt bad um, the, the kind of the, the the memory that just sticks with me that kills me when i think about it is that a lot of these people who had those jobs they had to go find something else to do when mm -hmm. that happened and a lot of them went to work at starbucks you know, they, 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 they went to work at a coffee shop, you know, and the ultimate insult was that Starbucks started selling CDs mm -hmm. right there at the counter. So it's almost like it was mocking them. Mm -hmm. You know, it was just the saddest, most, you know, kind of iconic thing to think that these people had dedicated themselves to selling music their entire lives and promoting music, the stuff they love. The industry evaporated and left them there having to start their lives over. And then places like Starbucks were selling music. You know, not really because they were making money selling music, but they just wanted to have something else right there on the counter at the point of purchase that you could impulse buy, you know, and that's why they did it. So, you know, to me, that's kind of the thing that just sticks with me about that, because, I mean, we really did have a huge industry here. We really did have people that spent their entire lives, you know, selling music and positioning music to people to check out for the first time. Mm -hmm. How did... Uh Let's transition into Bill. How did Bill survive through all that? Bill's Records was a stop. That was the second stop I'd have to make in Dallas when I come up here. I had to go to Bill's. I don't know how he did it. I honestly yeah. don't know how he did it. I don't know how he stayed open that many years. Yeah. Because people stopped buying music. I mean, Bill always kind of traded in memorabilia. He bought, you know, posters and other stuff. And, and it was weird. He had this whole other life that he never really told me about where uh, I didn't find out until after he passed away that he bought and sold artwork. Okay. You know, really valuable, rare artwork and, and coins and stuff. He was collecting all this stuff and kind of, he was like the original hoarder. You know, he was mm -hmm. hoarding all of this stuff, you know. And it wasn't until he passed away and they started cleaning out his estate that we realized he had all this stuff, you know. And maybe that's how he stayed alive. Mm -hmm. I, don't, I don't know. But, I mean, he barely knew how to use the Internet, mm -hmm. you know. And it was, you know, a lot of times he was depending on kids that worked there to sell his stuff online for him. Mm -hmm. But again, that was such a tedious thing. And, and Bill, um, the thing that Bill loved about having a record store was he loved the interaction with people. He loved being an old school mom and pop storefront, brick and mortar place where people would come in and shoot the shit about music for two hours. Mm -hmm. That was his whole life. He was there every single day, you know, and the idea of selling music online is in direct juxtaposition to that you're just putting something in an envelope and sending it to a stranger yeah exactly you know and i think the thing that bill cherished more than anything else and this is really kind of weird because he didn't really have a personal life he didn't really have uh any other life other than the record store but people would complain about his prices there would be no price tags on the records and the reason why is because he would talk to somebody and see what kind of person they were and then decide how much he was going to charge for a record. And I know that sounds judgmental and it sounds terrible, but if you went in there and took the time to meet Bill and just hang out with him, 
and be friends with him, he wouldn't even let you pay for a record. Mm. He just wanted you to have the music that he knew you loved. But if you were coming in there like a jerk and saying, you know, how much is this? And you, and Bill could tell the guy was just going to resell it to somebody else. Then he would tell him, oh, it's a hundred bucks, you know, because mm-hmm. he didn't want you to have the record. You know, that that's that's he wanted somebody to have the record who loved it and would keep it for their for their whole life. You know, that that's why he was in the business. He loved being that guy, you know, to, to turn you on to some kind of music you'd never heard before or a record that he thought that you deserved because you were a really decent human being. Man, he was amazing in the, the store. Baby G worked there. Everybody worked there at one point in time. And where exactly was the original? It was north? It was North Dallas in Spring Valley. Spring Valley. Right yeah. by my house when I was growing up. Wow. Did you grow up going there? Oh, yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Even, he had a smaller store prior to that. Mm-hmm. And that's when I first met him. It was down on the other end of the shopping center. And, um, you know, he, he uh, I, I made an offhand comment one day that I, I was thinking about trying out for this band. But I didn't have a bass at that time. There were no basses, no mm-hmm. bass players in Dallas, and nobody bought and sold basses or whatever. Uh, but he said, "You know, just let me know if you need a bass. I'll get you one." And he bought me a, a brand new Fender Precision Maple bass, so I could try out for this band. And that's then I got in the band, and you know, that's how my my music career started was because of Bill. Wow, man! Did your documentary ever come out? Yeah, I, it, I've well, seen it on. I've seen parts online. I, know, I mainly but. just put it on YouTube. Okay. I mean, I made that for him. Yep. I didn't really make it to try and make money off of it or anything like that. I just wanted him to have the keepsake of that old store. Yeah, everybody uh, has memories of that. Has memories of him. Not just Dallas people, but anybody who came through Dallas. You got the word. That's where you went. He was an interesting guy, man. He really was. I was shocked when uh, the store moved south of downtown and. Red Bull put me in a whatever that hotel is next to it. Yeah. And uh, I can tell you another funny story about that because back in the murder dog days, I know for sure I stayed at a really, really terrible hotel, like right there. I know exactly. That neighborhood was kind of the hood. Yeah, Not the hood. South hood, Lamar, yeah. yeah. Before it, wasn't it like got gentrified. Yeah. But it was massage parlors and just shit hotels. And, <laughs> and I, I was standing outside this really nice brand new hotel like, Man, I know this area for real. Yeah. And then I looked to the left. I had no idea Bills had moved there. I didn't live here, you know, and I was like, Bills Records is right here. And I go in and he's right there at well, the counter. His lease had expired in North Dallas and he was having to find a new place. Mm-hmm. And this developer had bought a bunch of buildings down there in the neighborhood you're talking about. Yep. And basically talked Bill into moving down there and gave him a really sweet deal uh kind of like he just needed an anchor tenant you know mm-hmm. in that little strip mall thing so he got bill to move down there and um it was weird how the how the change in music shifted mm-hmm. when he moved there i mean prior to that i mean bills was in north dallas it was all about dance music and dj records and hip-hop and punk rock and mm-hmm. all of those kind of alternative uh outsider types of music but then when he moved out there to the other side of town south of downtown all these country people embraced him and he started having country people playing in the store every Saturday afternoon. So it was this whole new generation of people who were into a different style of music who kept bill going, you know, and thankfully those people were the ones who still bought music. You know, they bought all these like Ray Wiley Hubbard and people like that. I mean, they went and came and saw those guys play there and those people still bought records. They still bought CDs at a time when everybody else was transitioning to buying music online. Man, well, you talk about that era, and I know it very well, of when everything crashed in Napster and this and that, and the industry just totally shifted. But if you were able to survive through that, 
records came back. People are buying them $35 records all day now. Yeah, they still are. It's crazy. Yeah, it's hard to get, if you're an independent artist, it's really hard to get your records pressed up. Yep. You gotta wait like six months to a year. Yeah, it's crazy. Yeah. It all, it like snapped back. But it also comes with the understanding of like how much, how much better it is. I mean, as an older dude, I'm like, I, I always say I had my stereo put away for a while, probably around that Napster era. New kids, little, you know, little space. I didn't have my stereo system built up. And when I went out and I found, and my friend of mine gave me an old receiver. I went and got a turntable. I went and got a cassette deck and I just put my, you know, setup back together and started putting records on again. Like as a kid, I never thought about how those records really resonated physically even. Like you could feel that vibration from the record that you didn't feel from the MP3. Yeah, they're definitely the songs are great, but. I had kind a of a weird experience. deal with records too. I mean, I love records obviously. But uh, people, you know, they collect autographs, mm-hmm. they collect memorabilia or whatever. My thing was to get artists to sign records that they didn't make. Oh, yeah. Yeah, I mean, because anybody can walk up to an artist and say, here, sign your record or whatever. Mm-hmm. But trying to get an artist to sign an album that was influential to them by an artist that was around 20 or 30 years prior to that is a lot more challenging. Mm-hmm. And working in nightclubs at Trees and here at the Kessler and everywhere. And the Sunset Strip. Yeah, and the Roxy, you know. Uh, yeah. I was there with all my DJ gear and all my records and stuff. And every time Donny Osmond or somebody like that would walk into the DJ, I got Donny Osmond to sign an NWA record. What? Yeah, seriously. <laughs> I still got it. Where is it? It's at my house. <laughs> I've got about 150 of them, of people that have have signed records that are like Jesus Lizard signing the Jesus Christ Superstar soundtrack album. Oh, man. Stuff like that. I've got uh, uh, Rob Zombie on on uh, Ice Cube. Damn. You know, stuff like that. I've tried to get it as hard a juxtaposition as possible because, you know, I wanted it to, to be a one-of-a-kind thing. Mm-hmm. You, uh, what, you said you went out to L.A. when things dried up in Deep Ellum here. Was that the beginnings of Cottonmouth, Texas, or is that you started that here before? No, I actually like, started right? Cottonmouth in Los Angeles. You know, that's what I thought. Actually. I had I had gone out there. I didn't have a place to live. I was kind of couch surfing, and uh, one day I was at Venice Beach, just kind of hanging out, looking like a bum, and this woman who was a A and R person uh, for Geffen, uh, she now had worked at A and M Records, but she saw me. She's like, Jeff, is that you? And I was like, Yeah, hey Teresa, what's up? Her name is Teresa Incident. She's like, what are you doing? And I'm like, I don't know. I'm just hanging out. She's like, well, I'm, I'm at A&M Records right now. If you want to go in the studio and do a demo or something, just let me know. And I needed a place to stay at the time. So I was like, do you think they let me sleep in the studio? Because I'll work, you know, I'll work three straight days straight through if, you, if you're into it. She's like, yeah, let me, when I get to the office tomorrow, I'll see what the schedule's like and see if we can get you in there. And I thought, cool, I'm going to have a place to sleep for three days. And uh, <laughs> I didn't have any gear with me. I didn't have any songs. I didn't have any ideas. Uh, but I did have a friend there who was a DJ. His name was Mick Petralia, who has gone on to become a big-time producer now. He works with Beck and all these other people. But Mick was the only person I knew in Los Angeles who had a sampler. So I called him up, and I said, Mick, I've got three days studio time booked at A&M. Do you think you could come help me uh, make a demo tape? And he's like, well, I can't come tomorrow, but I can come the day after that. So I went in that first day with no gear, no ideas or whatever. And the engineer's like looking at me like, what are you going to do, dude? And I was like, well, shit, I've got these notebooks full of these songs, or not really songs, but short stories that I'd written about stuff that I had 
do you think I could read this notebook onto tape just in case I ever lose these notebooks? I'll have like another copy of them. He's like, sure, dude, it's your time, whatever. So I, all day, I spent all day just reading these stories one after another, not really performing them, but just reading them onto tape, you know, just to have a document of them. And then the next day, Mick came. We got in the studio, and we started working on some instrumental stuff, kind of like the old beginning of DDT, that type of stuff. And we worked all day, you know, doing putting together all these weird little instrumental ideas. And then at the end of the day, the engineer pressed the mute button or unmute button on the track where my vocal was. And it just so happened to be on the spot where we had recorded an instrumental. And Mick looked at me, he's like, what is that? And I said, oh, it's a stupid story I recorded yesterday. He goes, no, man, that works. And we went down the line one after another. And by the end of the day, there were 14 of them. Hmm. And when Teresa put me in there, she thought maybe I was going to come out with a song or two. And I literally had 14 songs that were almost done in like two days. It was like magic. It was a complete accident, but it was like magic. And so, you know, by the end of that week, A&M was trying to sign me. Uh, a few of the cassette tapes started floating around town. Geffen wanted to talk to me. I went to lunch with Irving, Irving Azoff. He wanted to sign me. All these, like, people came out of nowhere. I mean, I didn't live anywhere. You know, I, I barely I barely had, you know, like a suitcase full of crap with me. And, you know, all of a sudden I had this demo tape that I had made by accident. And uh, and oddly enough, you know, I decided to call it Cottonmouth at first. And, uh, you know, people thought, okay, that's all right. But when I decided, to, I heard there was another band called Cottonmouth. So when I put Texas on the end of it, everybody had to hear it. Mm -hmm. Something about being from Texas made, made you know, they, they just had to check it out. They, they made all the difference in the world. Man, that's so dope. That's a crazy story. Where'd you go from there? I mean, did you, who put out that first Cottonmouth? Well, A&M. Okay. Uh, Teresa was trying to get me signed to A&M at the time. And uh, I had a falling out with a woman that worked in the office there that made it impossible for that to happen. And A&M had the masters to these demos or whatever in their storage space. And I, I didn't know what I was going to do because, I mean, they owned them. You know, it was it was going to, I mean, I hadn't, I hadn't signed a contract or anything like that. But one night I went up there and asked the guy who was working the vault there if I could check out my tapes to go remix them somewhere else. And I just never brought them back. Mm. And they never noticed them gone because it was just a demo. They weren't, you know, they didn't really have that much invested in it or anything like that. But um, eventually I just signed with Virgin. That's know, right. That's using right. those tapes. Man, that's crazy. Yeah. How did you end up working at the Roxy? Was that around the same time? That was uh, that was at the tail end of that time. Yeah. I literally you were there for a minute. I was there for almost twelve years. Yeah, but I had, you know, at that time I was I was going back to Texas. I had all my stuff loaded up. I was going back to Texas, and I was driving down Sunset Boulevard, about to get on the highway to head back. And I drove by the Roxy, and the front door of the Roxy was open. And I thought, you know what, I'm going to pop in there just for a second and see what it looks like, see if it still looks the same. Because I had been there when I was a kid. My dad had taken me to see Bill Bruford there in, like, 1980. And when I went in there, Nick Adler, the guy who was running it at the time, his dad is Lou Adler, who owns mm -hmm. it. Um, he was sitting in there and just kind of doing books or whatever. And we started talking. And I was like, well, cool, thanks for letting me come in here and check it out. He goes, man, you want a job here? I was like, man, I'm, I'm about to go back to Dallas. He goes, no, man, I'll, I'll put you to work tomorrow if you want. And I was like, 
you know what? Yeah. I mean, I didn't really have anything to come back to in Dallas. And I said, yeah, I'll do that for a while. And I ended up staying two and a half years until I came back here and started working at the Kessler. Twelve years. No, it was two and a half two years. Half. It was the last two and a half years I was there. Oh, okay. Yeah, yeah. You're, you were in L.A. for 12 years? Yeah. Okay, gotcha, gotcha. I got to L.A. in like 1994. Okay. I think. And I ended up leaving uh, the Roxy in 2007. Hmm. Damn, crazy. Yeah. Were you booking it? No, I was managing it. Managing it? Yeah. What kind the, of bands were playing the Roxy at that time? Everything. Yeah? Yeah, everything. I mean, the Roxy's always been a real broad cross-section of, of all kinds of stuff. Uh, we would, you know, it's a lot like the Kessler here in Dallas. Mm-hmm. It's a real small, intimate, you know, showcase room. And I, we would do a lot of these shows where uh, on the calendar it would just say TBD, you know, t- like we, no one on the staff could know who we're playing. And then I'd get there that afternoon, it'd be the Sex Pistols mm-hmm. or the Red Hot Chili Peppers or the Black Crows or somebody like that. You know, they're way too big to play a room that small. So yeah. they would literally announce it that afternoon. Yeah, I used to hear about that. Yeah. What? Uh, but that's one of the venues where all the best, like, yeah, everybody's 70s, 80s Frank Zappa out. recorded a live album yep. there. It was amazing. Frank's, Legendary Nirvana played there, of course. Frank Zappa's... Like archivist is from my hometown in Pennsylvania, from Erie, Pennsylvania, and they just put out a six CD set of three concerts that were in like Erie and in a, in a university out just outside of Erie, and they're charging. This is CDs. They're charging one hundred and sixty dollars for this. Yeah, for that CDs. Sucks. I would pay. I would pay sixty. I'd pay ten a CD for that. Maybe a little more. Maybe not one hundred and sixty for stupid CDs. Yeah, yeah. That's crazy. I'd Records remember. probably would buy it. I remember seeing Zappa uh, right after Zoot Lures came out. He mm-hmm. played in Dallas. I saw him in 77 when Adrian Blue had just joined his band. What? Can you uh, tell me your first concert experience? Cause you've told me that before. Uh, Elton John. Yeah, it was Elton John at the Cotton Bowl with Steely Dan. Damn. At the Cotton Bowl. Yeah. Huge. My dad took me. I was 11 years old. How long after that was Grateful Dead? That was 1978. Seventy years later, yeah. Okay. But in 78, you were like, you were a teenager. Yeah, 16. Yeah? Yeah. What was that like, being that <laughs> young in that crowd in that era? Uh, I got dosed. You did? Yeah. Uh, uh, I, my sister and I had gone to the show. I had no idea that LSD was acid, that they were the same thing. And uh, we're walking from the parking lot in there, and two guys in army jackets came up and asked me if I wanted some Donald Duck, and I didn't know what they were talking about. And... Uh, you know, he showed me these postage stamp looking things that had little Donald Ducks on them. <laughs> and I was like, why would I want that? You know, I'm not a stamp collector or whatever. He goes, I tell you what, just open your mouth. And I was like, all right. And he put it in my mouth. I was like, this doesn't taste like anything. Is this supposed to be like candy or something? He's like, just see if you can find me in two or three hours. Mm. And by then I was tripping balls. I had no idea what was going on at all. I had this complete breakdown because I was trying to eat popcorn and I... I saw the entire lifespan of popcorn in my mouth while I was chewing it, you know. I'd become a seed, and then a corn stalk, and then it had been shoved, and then it had been burned, and then it exploded in my mouth, you know. Huge, huge, profound. uh, (laughs) Back when drugs were good. (laughs) Shit. Again, I didn't know I was on LSD. Mm -hmm. You know, I was just, and I didn't even know the Grateful Dead. I didn't know much about them. I'd seen the name the Grateful Dead in the newspaper, and I figured they were a heavy metal band like Black Sabbath or something, you know. Man. I got up there, you know, I got, I, I made my way up to the front of the stage, you know, and it sounded like they were tuning up, you know, and just kind of, they kept playing, playing, playing. I'm like, 
when are they going to start rocking out, man? You know, like 20 minutes went by. And I'm like, are they going to do this all night? You know? (laughs) And I didn't realize that was their music. 20 minutes is a long time on acid. (laughs) (laughs) It was fun, though, man. Yeah, I bet. What was the first rap show you ever saw? Uh, Hmm. Probably maybe NWA at City Lights. Yeah? Yeah, or Run DMC and the Beastie Boys. That was probably right about that time. Mm -hmm. Uh, Ice-T. When power came out, Man. you know, a lot of the, it was weird how a lot of these rap shows that came through early on were really a mixed bag. It wasn't like all gangster rap or, you know, it was like the DOC and JJ fad, you know, oh, yeah, <laughs> yeah. opening up for NWA, you know, it was a lot of cross section, UTFO, Houdini, those type of bands, you know, they would be mixed in there with public enemy who were really militant. You know. mm-hmm. Well, there wasn't as much rap at the time. So it was like, they, had, they say, had to do it that way. Yeah. I mean, yeah. if people would, I, don't ever listen to Kid and Play in my adult life at all. But I bought, <laughs> I bought Kid and Play tapes because they were there. They came yeah. out that week. That was yeah. what was there on the shelf. No and doubt. I took my little money and I had every damn tape you could, you know, that was out. Yeah, no doubt. Know? No doubt. And that was amazing. Like the first, you know, when you would go to see the Fat Boys with <laughs> Run DMC and Ice T and whoever else, like just a crazy mix. I remember going to see Ice T one time on New Year's Eve at State Fair Coliseum. And all the other acts had already played, and we were waiting for Ice-T to come on, and someone started shooting in the crowd, and the whole place just scattered. And Ice-T never even came on that night. He was going to come on right at midnight, you know. That was a story of my life. Yeah. In fact, I left you at the Axiom once and saw, like, we used to do that because the Axiom shows would be over by midnight, but the, the rap concerts, the rap clubs didn't, nothing happened till 2. Yeah, yeah. So you could go all the way out north and see something I feel like that night you handed me a copy of The Devil Made Me Do It, Paris's first album. Oh, yeah. You put yeah. me onto Paris, and that yeah. became like one of my favorite albums of all time. I remember meeting the Tommy Boy people up in New York during the new music seminar, and they hit me to all that, all that Tommy Boy stuff, Mantronics and Paris and all those acts. Mm-hmm. Taylor Soul, obviously. Yeah, man, that was crazy. Yeah. I, I love that Paris record. I wonder what ever happened to him. He still puts out records. He oh, exists. Yeah. yeah. It's still, he's pretty much still the same, but it just underground does his thing he was you know to him, he was kind of the closest thing to public enemy at the time you know kind yeah. of the black nationalist uh that was his vibe i mean thing. him and x clan and public enemy and some of the, that was the best music yeah. to me that's what brought me into it yeah no doubt that's that real straightforward direct message of you know new york music yeah until nwa came along la didn't have any hip well, paris but, is oakland oh yeah that's right paris is oakland yeah so was digital underground yep yeah no, it was crazy. It was so fun to see. And then, like, you being here, me being in Houston, so far worlds away from there. And I personally remember seeing when, you know, first time's Tribe Called Quest or De La or, you know, Dante Ross talks about bringing De La Soul to the Rhinestone Wrangler in Houston, which was, like, the spot before anything. Yeah. And then it all flipped for the better to an extent because I think what was whack you know, what you just said about places getting shot up, I've seen, I've dealt with that many times in, in my youth. and uh, That was a problem in Exodus, too. Yeah, I mean, but besides the mics sucked. Yeah. You know, you go to a nightclub, it's not a live music venue. They may not even have a real sound person or something. It's just like they, they cut, it was the, the, the concert was very secondary to the selling of drinks. Yeah. And the dancing through the night and getting people fucked up and getting all their money. I remember when, when Run DMC played at Liberty Lunch in Austin, and the, the DJ stand was so yep. flimsy, 
you know, they kept jumping up and down. The needle kept jumping on the record. I remember all that. Everybody talks about that. Everybody that was lucky enough to be at that. Because they had a big show in Houston, and then they had a night off in their tour, and so somebody booked them in Liberty Lunch in Austin. Yeah, yeah, I remember that. But that was always sound problems. It was always a mess. And then at some point, and you saw this firsthand as well, the live music venues, there were some brave souls around that started doing it, and they would book it. But people like Ice-T, yeah. they never turned back. Cypress Hill and those type of soul assassins type groups and the public enemy, they didn't turn back to the clubs. They were like, they were doing proper concerts, proper stage. Dude, the first time we did Cypress Hill uh, at Trees, there was maybe 50 people there. Oh. It was Cypress Hill and Tim Dog. Oh, man. The very first <laughs> tour they ever did. And nobody knew who they were yet. Yeah. You know, I knew who they were because Muggs was in 783. Mm -hmm. And 783 was on the color soundtrack. That's how I knew, you know, to make the connection to, to book them. Mm-hmm. But, uh, yeah, I mean, we had a few shows like that at Trees where they were really underattended. You know? mm -hmm. First time Pearl Jam played, there was 35 people there. At Trees? At Trees, yeah. And that would have been post-Nirvana at Trees? Uh, same year. Really? Yeah. Hmm. All right, my I think it was the same year. But, I mean, the only reason there was anybody there at all was because their drummer was from Dallas. Matt Chamberlain was the drummer, the New Bohemians drummer, for okay. like about two or three months then. And pretty much everybody in the audience there were friends of Matt's. And it was such a small crowd that, I mean, they had a portable basketball goal with them. And they set it up in the middle of the room and shot baskets with everybody in the audience. What? <laughs> I actually talked about this on another podcast. Of, I was never a Pearl Jam fan because of all the cool stuff that was happening in Seattle. And I was like, of all those bands, these besides Nirvana, I was like, these are the guys that break out? It took a while for them to break out. I mean, they, their name was Mookie Blaylock before that, so they were all about basketball. That was their kind of their main thing that they would talk about. Dang, I didn't actually knew that. I just knew two of the guys were in Mother Love Bones. Yeah, yeah. I didn't really know. Well, man, you've seen it all. Seen so much over the time here, and I definitely appreciate you giving me your time. Sure, some, happy uh, to do it. Real talk. It's been. 30 good years, man. <laughs> Something like that. Yeah, I know, man. We're lucky to be alive. Yeah, for real. I'm so glad you're here, man. And uh, tell me about the Kessler Theater. Now, this is your your home. The first it, podcast I, I work, did yeah. with Money, Money Waters, the to first Talk So Real we recorded here. Yeah. yeah. Uh, I'm the artistic director here. We're sitting upstairs right now in the art gallery space. Uh, it's a perfect job for me to be at this age. You know, it's kind of more of a low-key deal. All our shows are over with by midnight. Really nice listening room, very much like the Roxy. Um, yeah, I mean, uh, I'm, I'm thankful to do it because, honestly, after I left the Roxy, I was pretty much determined not to do anything else in the music business. It looked like the music business was dead at the time. Mm -hmm. But coming across this place, uh, you know, I mean, I've been here 13 years now, and what we've managed to do is bring in all these artists that are like legacy artists, you know, that are still out there doing it. Uh, and it's perfect opportunity to see him playing in a really small space. Mm -hmm. All different kinds of music, everything. Yeah, for real. And can you talk about the Longhorn Ballroom at all? Yeah, uh, I worked at the Longhorn, which is a legendary venue. I saw the Sex Pistols there when I was in 11th grade. Uh, it was a legendary country venue for years. Um, I got a job as the booking agent there when I was 23. I worked there for two years. And... It's, it's been through a lot of different phases, um, but most recently, Edwin, the guy that owns the Kessler here, just bought the Longhorn, and he's in the process of refurbishing. So it should be up and running here in probably four or five months, I would imagine. Man, and that's 1,200,000 capacity? or 
It was 1700 when I worked there okay. the first time. It's a big room. Yeah. I mean, we were having acts like Motorhead and the Butthole Surfers, Flaming Lips, Red Hot Chili Peppers. That was back in the 80s. And now it's going to be a real broad cross-section of everything. Uh, but it'll be there'll be an emphasis on the history and the heritage of the room. Very cool. That's so cool to see you come back with all these new, shiny, clean <clears throat> corporate venues we're gonna go to one tonight I yeah think. this will the kessler is not a corporate I venue know, and the longhorn is not a corporate i mean we're the exact exact antithesis of that i mean that's we're trying to have a culture here that's real inviting and warm where we know our customers on a first name basis happy are here happy to accommodate whatever they need same thing with the artists i mean that's that's really what it's about it's almost like a uh, like a museum in a way i mean it really is a, a place to preserve art and pre- preserve creativity culture yeah it's of the culture and i definitely appreciate you edwin and everybody for keeping it alive getting the heights theater in houston yeah heights same like deal that. big steve who's been my partner working at all these places in dallas he's down there running the heights mm-hmm. yeah. man well please keep doing what you do man i appreciate it we will as long as we have people like you supporting it oh yeah <clears throat> i'll come down here with my little podcast anytime <laughs> Well, thanks for coming. Man, thank you. Definitely uh, hope to hang out again this year sometime soon. If people want to uh, find, uh, pay you a bunch of money for autographed records that uh, are. I'm, I'm never, <laughs> selling, never those. selling those. No way, man. What about the cassettes that Easy E would mail you? How much would it take? Oh, you know what? I, I, <laughs> I've got something even better than that. Yeah. Yeah. During that time period, I had an answering machine that used regular cassettes for the incoming messages. I've mm-hmm. got dozens and dozens of incoming messages from people like eric and and people from that era you sent me mine before yeah i've got bunches of them it's it's funny to listen to them a lot of the course a lot of the people on this 30 something years ago they're deceased now yeah and to hear their voices again it really kind of has this uh it's just weird you know i mean it's a it's nice to hear their voices again you know just talking where's your uh your page, man. Where's your page? People can go listen to all of your band camp. I, the, I put the, some of it on YouTube. You have? Okay. Yeah. yeah. So, yeah. I'm going to look for that. Cool. And y'all vote for Beto. Yeah. <laughs> we got to get rid of Greg Abbott. I'm so sick of that dude. It's got to happen. Yeah, it's got to happen. Been, he's been having some, uh, some good fortune lately, though. I think things have been happening for Beto. How cool would it be to have a musician as the governor of Texas? That's, that would be the coolest thing ever. It would be amazing. It's time. punk rock guy too. If anybody can tell you about the Clash, it's Beto. Really? Yeah, he's a huge Clash fan. Have you hosted him here? Has uh, he come to the Kessler? He's too big. Yeah. You know, in the very beginning of his campaign, I was trying to get him in here, but now, I mean, I went and saw him last weekend in Frisco. There's four thousand people there. You know? Good in yeah. Frisco. In Frisco, yeah. Good. Yeah. Get out and vote, y'all. Things change. We'll see. Let's have hope for sure this time around. We shall see. Thank you, Jeff Lyles. Cool. Thanks, Matt. And thank you, one and all, for tuning in again. Once again, like I always say, tell a friend to tell a friend. Everybody wants you to like it and subscribe it, whatever. Do whatever those things are. Hit the button. But, you know, let your people know we're out here on all the platforms. Talk So Real with Matt Sanzala. Talk So Realist on the socials. And please keep tuning in. Thanks, Matt. Thank you.